trust. Maybe you went through like some poverty and you're like, oh man, it's hard to get out of that poverty mentality. Even if things are like on the upside for you, it's like, oh man, I don't know if I can trust that I will be okay in this situation because I've been in kind of this survivor mentality for a while. Uh, maybe you struggle to trust yourself. Uh, you, you struggle with sin and you're like, man, I know God is working in me, but I'm struggling right now and I, I struggle to overcome this. I get it. I have trust issues too. Let me give you one example. When I was a preteen, um, the church that I was attending at the time, we went to this camp that had a bunch of um, team building activities there, ropes, courses, stuff like that. And the thing that terrified me the most was the trust fall. Anyone ever done one of those before? Yeah, the, this trust fall. It's a basic thing. You climb up, uh, you get higher than everybody else, and you cross your arms, and you just close your eyes and fall backwards. And the idea is that you're, the people there with you will have their arms linked together, and they'll catch you, and you've learned to trust them. I did not trust these people, okay? I'm looking at, I was a scrawny preteen. I'm looking at a, a bunch of other scrawny preteens that are supposed to catch me. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. Uh, I know like if, if I were to try to catch someone, it wouldn't go well. So how's this going to work? It doesn't help that about maybe a month or two earlier, I was at a concert and I watched a guy get on the stage and jump off expecting to crowd surf and for people to catch him and the crowd parted instead and he ended up needing stitches. And so in my mind, I'm on this trust fall thinking, this is what's going to happen to me. This is where I break a bone. This is where I get hurt. How do I know I can trust these people? How do I know they're going to do what they claim they're going to do? How do I know uh, that they're going to catch me? And I use that story from my childhood but the reality is, that is like the essence of trust, right? Will things happen the way that people say they will happen? Can, if someone says they will do something, will they do something? In, in marriage, right, you stand at the altar, for better or worse, till death do us part. Do these people mean it, right? Can I trust? Um, and you can go on and on. When you sign a contract with an employer, there's trust issues, can I trust that this employer is actually going to follow through on the promises that they're making in the contract, which usually are slanted towards them, let's be honest, right? Um, see, when you trust someone, you have to believe that someone is going to do what they say they're going to do. And then beyond that, the thing that makes trust difficult is not only do I have to believe that someone's going to do what they say they're going to do, I have to, in many ways of my life, I have to operate with the assumption that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Like, I can't just live my life not trusting anybody or else I will just con I'll never want to leave my house, right? So I have to not only believe them, but I have to act on this belief that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And beyond that, we live in a sinful world. So all of us at some point in our lives have had trust broken by people we care about, by people we love, by people that we've trusted. I mean, most people, if you're being honest and you struggle with trust in your relationships, you don't struggle with trust naturally. There were relationships that went sour that caused you to have trust issues, right? Like you entered into a relationship, maybe somebody cheated on you, maybe like a parental relationship didn't work out the way that it was. this was a person that you were supposed to be able to trust and you weren't able to trust them and that's left you with trust issues the rest of your life. Uh, most people who've struggled with finances. They don't like when their finances, when they get back up on their feet, they don't just automatically leave that mentality because they've got trust issues. Like, I don't know, like I struggled for so long. Most people who struggle with trust issues at their work have probably been betrayed by a boss, right? Like this is just how it goes. You experience betrayal, you experience the sin in the world, and then you struggle to trust. And 
I think we can all just acknowledge that lack of trust is not a fun place to be. It's not fun to live in a world where you feel like you can't trust people. And the point I'm trying to make is that all of us project our own experiences and our own sin nature on other like future experiences, which also make it difficult to trust. And I know you guys are in a series right now where we're, you're, it's called One Story, where you're just kind of tracing the story of the Bible, like the big picture story of the Bible, and talking about how this book that was written over thousands of years with 40 different authors, like how does this tell one story and what is that one story? And you're kind of breaking that down. It's this unified story. And so you've talked about creation and God's design for the world. You've talked about the fall. And I uh, was able to catch the service last week. I watched it online while I was preparing for, um, for this sermon so I could make sure that we were tying these things together well. And I, one of the things that was encouraging to me is you weren't left hopeless last week when you talked about the fall and the reality of sin. Uh, you were left pointed to Jesus, the one who would come, the one who would deal with sin, which begs the question that people have been asking since the garden. Can I trust God? The fall, Adam and Eve's sin, was ultimately a question of, can I trust that God is who he says he is? Can I trust that God will do the things that God says he will do? And sin, many times, is a lack of trust in God and kind of taking things into our own hands. Can I trust God? Now, for those of you with uh, maybe a Christian background, you've probably asked that question before. Can I trust this God that I follow? Um, one example I would think of is maybe you were raised in a church where you were taught that salvation was a gift from God that was given to you freely, but then you had to work really hard to keep it. Like if you sinned one too many times, God would just all of a sudden take all of his grace away from you. And you kind of had this like idea of like, I can lose what I've got, which creates trust issues, right? Like, can I trust myself? Can I trust God that he's going to do what he said? Um, maybe you were raised in a church where um, you, you had some magic words that you were supposed to repeat after a pastor. And if you, you were left wondering, like, what if I said the magic words wrong? Can I trust that God, like, is going to do good? And so you'd kind of, if you were like me, I prayed the magic words every single week to make sure one of them stuck at some point in my life. Because I was just worried, like, did I say the right thing? Can I trust God to do what God says he's going to do? Um, uh, it doesn't help too that we think about like our sin. Like I know I sin. I know my sin nature. I know my failures. Can I trust that I'm in good hands? Can I trust that God's going to take care of my sin? We look at the world and we see all of the problems in the world. And we wonder, can we trust that God is actually working to restore all things? Can we trust that God's going to fix this? Because many times we look around and the world feels like it's spiraling out of control. Can I trust God in this? And so to, this morning, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the promises of God. I want to talk about the covenants of God. See, after the fall, God makes a promise with Adam and Eve that a snake crusher is going to come. He promises that she will have a child. There will be a child that enters into humanity that a snake will bite. And then that, that person that comes will crush the head of the serpent and will make things right again. And a lot of the rest of the Bible, as you read it, is leading up to this Messiah that's coming, the snake crusher that's going to come. And Jesus and God is basically working out that promise that he makes in the garden for uh, a lot of the rest of the Bible. 
So the question that I want to answer this morning, since you talked about the fall last week, is can I trust God to deal with the fall? Can I trust God to deal with the sin of the world? And I'm talking about corporately, sure. Like, can I, when I look around and I see the evil in the world, can I trust that God's going to deal with the evil in the world? But I also mean this like individually. Can I trust God if he says my sin is covered, that it's covered? Can I trust God? And so as you're reading Genesis, you get the creation story. You get the story of Adam and Eve. You get the story of Noah. Um, If you fast forward a few chapters beyond the Garden of Eden and Adam and the fall, you meet one of the main characters of the story that's going to stick around for a lot of the rest of the Bible is this guy named Abraham. And we start reading about Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. And when we meet Abraham at first in Genesis 11, he's got a different name. He goes by Abram, and he's married to a woman named Sarai, who will eventually be named Sarah. Um, And most likely, Abram and Sarah were pretty steeped in Mesopotamian culture. And so we don't know if Abram worshipped the Mesopotamian gods of the day. But Joshua, um, when he talks about Abraham, tells us that uh, Abraham's parents definitely did. So Abraham wasn't raised in a home of people that were worshiping Yahweh. Abraham was raised in a home of people that worshiped the Mesopotamian gods. And so he may or may not have also worshiped those gods. Perhaps he did before God called him out of that. But the point is he was not raised in some like culture where everyone was encouraging people to worship Yahweh, right? He was just like raised in a normal culture, following the current of the culture. Um, The text points out in Genesis 11 that Uh, Very early on, the Sarai was barren, which was a big deal, not only in Jewish culture in those, uh, or not Jewish culture because Judaism hadn't started yet, but in that day, they believed that if you were barren, that that was a judgment from God. That God didn't care about you, you had done something wrong, and that's why you couldn't have children. And then in Genesis 12, so you've got this man who's steeped in another culture, most likely not even looking for God. Um, his wife is barren, feeling like God is distant from her. And then God speaks to Abram. And, and one of the things that I think is important, important about this, just to start off, is that Abram had done nothing deserving of God to just call him out. God just, out of his grace, chooses a man steeped in Mesopotamian culture and says, you, I want you. And that shows us God's grace and God's mercy right off the bat. He wasn't necessarily coming after someone that was seeking after him. He just, out of his grace, chose a person that he's going to eventually make a people out of. And in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham and he tells him, and and I'm kind of setting up the context for where we're going in Genesis 15. And he tells him, I want you to leave the land that you're in. In other words, I want you to make a hard break from the Mesopotamian culture that you're in and the other gods of the city that you're being tempted to worship. And I want you to leave that city and go where I'm going to send you. And then he makes a promise to Abraham. And here's his promise. He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have children. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless the people that bless you. I'm going to curse the people that curse you. So Abram listens to God. He leaves the culture that he's in, follows God. And a few chapters later, we get to Genesis chapter 15, where God decides he's going to make these promises that he's made to Abram official. And this is one of the most important passages in all of scripture when it comes to showing us the nature and the character of God and his promises. So some time has passed. Sarai is still not pregnant. 
So Abram's got trust issues. Can I trust that God is going to do what God promised he would do? He promised he would make a nation out of me. He promised he would give me a great name. So let's pick up in verse 1. Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 says, I'm just going to read it. All right. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. So God comes to Abram and he says, Hey, Abram, come outside with me for a minute. I want you to look at the stars. Do you see how many stars there are? Can you number all of the stars? This was before light pollution where we probably can number the stars, right? Like you ever go out into like the great sand dunes or go out, um, we were, okay, yeah, yeah, great. Um, you ever go out into like the great sand dunes or uh, somewhere far away from civilization and you can see like the galaxies? Uh, thank you. You can see the Milky Way. You can see just like how beautiful um, the stars are and they're just like innumerable. This is what Abram's looking at. And God says, can you number the stars? No, you can't. And guess what? I'm gonna make a nation that's that large out of you. And look at Abram's response in verse six. It says, and he believed the Lord. Do you want me to try this again? All right, cool. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram believed, he put his faith in what God was promising him. He took God at his word. And look at what it says God did. It says that God counted it to him as righteousness. Abram said, I believe in this covenant that you're making. I believe in the promise so much. And God says, okay, well, then I'm going to count that to you as righteousness. I'm going to make you righteous. Now, when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's really easy for us to almost make this disconnect between the two different halves of the Bible, if you will. And it's almost easy for us to see like two different gods, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. But it's important for us to understand that God does not change. And the way he operates among humanity doesn't change. It's also easy for us to look at the Old Testament and look at the New Testament and think that people found grace and favor in the eyes of God two different ways. But this just isn't true. And we see this all the way back in Genesis. It says that he believed, he put his faith in God, and God counted that faith as righteousness. And so when it comes to how humanity has related to God, it's always been about faith being counted as righteousness before God. So when you read the Old Testament, I don't want you to think Old Covenant, New Covenant, even though like that is what the Bible teaches. So I'm not saying don't like differentiate those things or Old God, New God, or Old Way of Relating to God, New Way of Relating to God. The people in the Old Testament followed God by putting their faith in the promises of God for a Messiah, in the promises of God for Jesus. And so they were actually looking forward to Jesus and putting their faith in God and God counted that towards them righteousness. And so the way that people in the Old Testament related to God by faith is very similar to the way we relate to God. We relate to God by looking back at what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us, but it's always been about Jesus. That's the point I'm trying to make. 
So when he is putting his faith in God's promises, he's putting his faith ultimately in the one who is to come. He's putting his faith in Jesus. And we're going to dive into some scripture to, to talk about that in just a few minutes. And so when you read the rituals and the sacrifices of the Old Testament, I want you to understand that all of those things are pointing towards Christ. They're all pointing towards Jesus. People weren't saved through the law. They were saved through putting their faith in the one who the law and the prophets and the sacrificial system pointed towards. So we look back at what Jesus accomplished and we are counted righteous as well when we put our faith and our trust and our hope in Jesus. Now, notice what Abram says next in verse eight. But he said, oh Lord God, here you go. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words, I see this covenant that you're making with me right now. How can I trust you? How can I trust that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? How do I know that you're going to come through for me? Now, if I'm God, I'm probably going to be pretty angry. I'm like, I called you away from all this. I've done all this stuff for you, and you question me? Like, how dare you, mere mortal, question my promises, right? But instead... Look at how God responds. And this is going to get super interesting. Verse nine says, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove three years old, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. All right, so let's just acknowledge for a second, it's about to get weird. Like we're, we're like, okay, God, how can I trust you? He's like, Hey, grab some cows, grab a goat and chop it in half. And, uh, I don't think PETA would be very happy in this moment. They're probably going to be angry. Can you imagine if we did stuff like this today? How can I trust you? Grab that stray cat over there. Let's talk. (laughs) But back then, this was a very common cultural practice of the day. And what they would do when they were going to make a covenant with each other is they would take an animal and then they would cut the animals in half and they would place them apart from each other with enough room for them to stand in between. And then kind of the, this is going to get gory, a little PG-13 for a second. The blood would like pool in the middle and then they would go stand in the blood and they would make a promise on standing on the blood that they would keep their ends of the bargain in this deal. And what they would say to each other when they would get in here is they would essentially say, may what was done to these animals be done to me if I don't keep up my end of the the deal. Like that's what they're saying. So can you imagine if we did this day, like instead of getting, like if you wanted to get married, instead of going to the courthouse, you have to grab a cow and, you know, make a covenant with each other in a pool of blood. Uh, Or you want to take out a loan on the on a car. You're not going to the business office. You're going out to the field, you know? Um, Oh, you want to borrow some money? Great. Like let's grab this, uh, this animal over this raccoon and we'll, we'll make a deal. Now imagine you're Abraham or Abram here in this moment. You've asked God how you know that he can be trusted. And he says, let's make a blood covenant together. Now, on one hand, you're like, okay, I think God can be trusted if he's willing to say, may what will happen to these animals happen to me if, if, if I don't follow through on my end of the deal. But can you imagine, like what I'm thinking is, what's my end of the deal? Because I'm about to agree to get chopped in half if this doesn't work out, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain. So look at verse 12. It says, um, as the sun was going down, a deep darkness or a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness 
fell upon him. Yeah, I think so. I'm about to enter into a blood covenant with the God of the universe. How is this going down? What's going to happen here? He's a little scared. It says a darkness fell on him. What are the terms going to be? What am I getting myself into? Look at what happens in verse 13. And this is kind of the crutch or the crux of the, not the crutch, the crux of the passage. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So Abram thinks that he's about to walk through this path and make a covenant with the God of the universe, where each of them have some end of the deal to keep up for God to keep his promises. And instead, God puts Abram in a deep sleep and walks through it himself. He says, I'm going to do all this. This is not dependent on you. This covenant is 100% dependent on me. And what he's doing is he's actually making a statement to Abraham in that moment. I'm the one who's going to do all of the work to keep this covenant. I'm the only one passing through. I'm the one who this depends on. So what God was telling him is this promise that I'm making to you is not based on your faithfulness to me. It's based on my faithfulness to you. And so this covenant that God makes with Abraham is completely dependent on him. So it's about, and it's also about so much more than land and children and blessing. God is actually doing something so much bigger. bigger. What he's doing is he's actually instituting the nation of Israel with Abraham and making promises to the nation. And what God will do, we don't have time to cover all of this, but what God will do is he will actually repeat this covenant over and over again with Abram's descendants, and he will repeat it with David. And we saw this last week in Genesis 3, right? God will rescue and bless the rebellious world by promising a snake crusher. So now we see this progressively getting more detailed. Now God is going to rescue and bless his rebellious world through a snake crusher that comes through Abram's family, which will eventually be a great nation, the nation of Israel. And then God will repeat that covenant to his descendants in more detail. He'll repeat it to David in more detail. And each of these people, as you study um, Genesis through like Jesus' arrival in Matthew, like so um, Genesis through Micah, Malachi, like all of the prophets, like what happens is this. You see that over and over again, the people that God has made this covenant with are going to fail and they're going to put God's promises in jeopardy. As you read the scripture, you're going to be wondering, oh no, did they just screw up God's plan? Did they just mess up God's plan for redemption? Starting almost immediately after this promise that God makes to Abram, Abram goes and has a child with another woman because he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't trust God. And it's, it's meant to make us say, is God trustworthy? Is God going to keep his promise? Because Abram is doing everything he can to screw it up. 
And then Isaac is going to do things to put it in jeopardy. And Jacob is going to do things to put it in jeopardy. And and David, when David is promised this, is going to do things to, to put this uh, covenant in jeopardy. And all of the kings that follow David are going to do things to put this promise of God in jeopardy. And yet, we continually see that God is living this out and saying, no, this is not based on your faithfulness to me. This is based on my faithfulness to you. You can't jeopardize what I'm doing. He is faithful to his covenant. And eventually what will happen is... The authors of the New Testament and the prophets will actually link this covenant to Abraham of a son to the Messiah. Galatians 3.16, I don't think we have that on the screen, says, Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. So they link this promised descendant to Christ. Um, Hebrews, uh, not only do they pro- do that with the descendant, they do it with the land um, to God's coming kingdom. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, it says, for he, that's talking about Abram, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram knew this was about more than just physical land, that this was a city that God is building. Um, the, the prophets and the authors of the New Testament will also link the blessings and cursings uh, to Jesus. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So to answer the question of can I trust God, I think we have to look at the covenants of God, of God's character. He passes through the covenant on his own and says, this is dependent on my faithfulness to you. He is the one who does all of the work to complete it. When Jesus went to the cross, his final words were, Tetelestai, it is finished. I'm done. I am the one who did everything that needs to be done to keep this covenant that I made long ago with Adam and Eve, and I repeated to Abraham, and I repeated to Abraham's descendants, and I repeated to David. I am the one who keeps my covenant. Who is it that saves? It's not us. It's God. What can we do to save ourselves? Nothing. Why? Well, you talked about this last week. We're dead in our sin, thanks to the fall. See, somewhere along the lines, we got this idea that we're all drowning in sin, and we just need a Jesus life raft to rescue us from sin. And that is not what the Bible teaches. We're on the bottom of the ocean dead. We don't need a life preserver. We need a resurrection. We need someone to pull us from the bottom of the ocean and to perform CPR and to raise us from the dead. That's what we need. We're dead in sin. If our salvation is dependent on us, we are in trouble because dead men can't make themselves alive. They just can't. It's all God. He did all the work that needs to be done. And it's actually wrong of us to think that forgiveness comes from God, but it's up to me to keep myself forgiven. That's not how it works. That's not how God's covenants work. That's not how God's promises work. The Old Testament is story after story after story of God's people failing and God staying faithful. Why? Because the one who can't be trusted is not God. It's us. If it was based on me, I'm in trouble. But luckily, and thank God, it's not. I know my own sin. I know my own sin nature. 
And this is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 goes so hard when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, my, I have two kids. My kids are my kids because they're my kids. They're not my kids because they did something. They're not my kids. Like if you're a parent, your kids don't work to stay your kids. Hey, you better do your chores or I'm disowning you. Like it may feel that way sometimes, but that's not like how parents relate to their children. I got to make sure my parents are happy so that they don't disown me. Like it, I think all of us would acknowledge that if you grew up in a household like that, that's not a healthy household or a good example of what a household should be. And if you're a child of God, you're not a child of God because of something you did. And if you're a child of God, you're not a child of God that has to earn your place in the family. It's given to you. Nothing can separate you from his love. You don't work to stay God's child. You are God's child because God is a God of covenant who keeps his promises. Let me read Romans 8, 29 and 30 to you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many. In other words, what Paul says is this. He says, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Predestined. So this is not a question of if this is going to happen. It's a question of when this will happen. Because it's going to happen. That's, what, that's the argument that Paul is making here. It's going to happen. You can trust it. It's predestined. Uh, and he goes on and he says, and those, oh, hold on, I don't think I have these on the screen, so never mind. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What Paul does to make this argument of God being a God who keeps his promises is he's saying, he gives a bunch of if-then statements. If this is true, this is true. If this is true, this is true. So what he says is, if you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then you will be called. So God will part the seas to make sure that you hear the message of Jesus and his love for you. You can run and you can hide, but God's going to find you. That's, that's the argument that he's making. And I just want to say, maybe you're here this morning and you've been running, you've been hiding and, and you're here because someone dragged you to be here. You're here because your spouse is like, I want to do church or whatever. Like you've been running. I want you to know this morning that maybe just maybe God sent me here to tell you to stop running. You can't run from the love of God. He will find you. He will pour out his grace on you. He will reveal the truth to you. So stop running. Because if you are predestined, you will be called. And then he goes on and he says, those he calls, he justifies. So if you've been called, you are justified. Your sins have been dealt with. Your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on and he says, um, if you've been cleansed of your sin, if you've been justified, you will be glorified. And so you didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to get it. And guess what? There's nothing you can do to stop what God's going to do in your life. God will work to glorify you. That's what he's going to do. Glorification is ultimately the final undoing of the curse and power of sin in your life. And this promise he makes is that if I started this process, I'm going to be the one that completes this process. It's based on my faithfulness to you, is what God is saying. It's all God. God's covenant with you 
is not based on your faithfulness to him. It's based 100% on his faithfulness to you. God will finish what he started. And it may feel like a faith fall to you. It may be tough to trust because you know yourself and you know your own sin. You may have trust issues. I get it. But you don't have to look any further than the cross where Jesus went through the cross alone to atone for and deal with your sin, to know that God is trustworthy and God is true. And he will do what he promises and you can trust him. And so what I want to just invite you to do this morning is I just want to invite you to trust God. And for some of you, what that may mean is for the first time, it may mean putting your faith and your trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to make you new. And if you want to do that, I want to give you one clear, simple next step. Uh, As soon as we're done this morning, I want you to find Dion and I want you to just tell him like, I feel like I need to put my faith and my trust in Jesus this morning. Uh, For those of us who have already put our faith and our trust in Jesus this morning, one way that we can be reminded of this covenant that God has made with us is through communion, where we take the elements, we take the bread and we take the juice and we We eat the bread, which reminds us of the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And we drink the juice, which reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It's this meal that God has given us to take and celebrate his covenant with us together. And to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ, that he will return, that he will make everything right, that he is working in you, uh, that he is making you new, that he is conforming you to his image. We have this this hope and this promise that we are reminded of by partaking of a meal together. And you do that here every week. It's this reminder that we all need, that God is a God who keeps his promises for us. And then we're also gonna spend some time singing together. And sometimes it's good to just sing the gospel over one another and just be reminded of the goodness and majesty and power of God and worship this God that is a covenant keeper. And so I'm gonna pray And we'll enter into that time of response. And I just want to invite you to respond however you feel God leading you in this moment. God, thank you for being a covenant-keeping God. Thank you for being a God that pours out your love on us when we run, when we go astray, when we fall back into sin. God, when we are unfaithful to you, thank you for this reminder that you are completely faithful to us. And you were faithful to us and you were faithful to this cause so much so that you went to the cross, gave up your very life so that we could be restored into right relationship with you. God, I pray for anybody in this room that is feeling this calling on their heart right now to follow you, God, that you would give them the courage to talk to to Dion after the service. God, I I ask that you would be with those of us who feel like we've run or we've strayed from you, that you would help us to to get a picture of you as as a father that runs to us when we run away, just as the prodigal son. Help us to take a step towards you and experience your love and grace running towards us. And this reminder that it's not based on us, it's based 100% on you. And we can worship and celebrate that and celebrate a God who throws parties when we come home. God, I ask that you would um, have your will and your way in people's hearts and people's lives this morning. Thank you for being a covenant-keeping God. Amen.